Good morning, everyone. As James said, uh, my name is Wes. Would it be okay if we closed that door? There's a reflection coming off that car straight into my eyes. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Ty. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Uh, such a great privilege, as always, to be speaking with you this morning. Uh, I've really been enjoying this series that we've been going through um, on Devoted. So we've been looking at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and it says, They devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, uh, to fellowship, and to breaking of bread, and to prayer. So last week, Micah did such a great job of talking about fellowship. I felt so encouraged and stirred afterwards and reminded of how important it is for us to fellowship together. And I don't know about you, but that um, coffee time after that service was extra sweet. But maybe that was just because of the brownies. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks thanks for that, Mark. It was, it was so good. But now, this week, we carry on, and we're looking at breaking of bread. So, I always think to myself, if scriptures are like this, if someone who doesn't know anything about uh, Christianity at all, they've never heard, never read a scripture before, and you read them the scripture, and, you know, they'll be, okay, apostles teaching, teaching, got it, fellowship, okay, cool, got it, and then you'll say, and devoted themselves to breaking of bread. They'll be like, this is a strange thing to devote yourself to, breaking bread, you know. It's like, do they have some kind of, like, pigeon ministry, you know, they, like, feed pigeons or something, you know. Obviously, I'm being very silly, but, you know, we've got to question these things in our mind, because sometimes we just take stuff for granted, and we just... You know, we do the, we go through the motions, we do the things, and we know we are, on a Sunday we do breaking of bread. But you know, what is it all about? And you probably have figured this out about me already. But normally, I like to go back, you know, and I like to see where things come from. Normally, when we do this and we look back into the scriptures, we can draw great depth and great under, understanding. I'm just going to have some water. We can draw great depth and great understanding from looking back into the scriptures and looking at where these concepts come from. And probably the first mention of breaking of bread is in this very interesting little story given to us in Genesis 14. And the story revolves around Abram. I'm saying Abram, not Abraham, because it's before God made his covenant with Abram. When God made his covenant with him, he changed his name to Abraham. So at this point in the story, he's still Abram. And we, we realize that Abram has been brought into the land of Canaan. The Lord said, go, live, be merry in this land. But he didn't actually own this land. He was a, he was a nomad. He was like this gypsy cruising around. And um, he, we, we know just before this, he, he was living with his nephew Lot. And they amassed great, great wealth, and they had a lot of flock, a lot of cattle, everything. And there were too, there was too much for the land to sustain, so they split. Lot goes off, and he settles by a, a place called Sodom, which we later find out is an incredibly, incredibly wicked place, and a place that God actually rains down sulfur, burning sulfur onto them because of the the wicked things they they're doing. So Lot goes and he, he settles there by, by Sodom. Um, Abram says, whatever land you take, I'll take whatever's left. And Abram sits, settles in this place called the Great Trees of Mamre. 
What a cool name, right? It's like, it makes me think of like Lord of the Rings, you know, the great, the great trees of Memre. And we later find out that Memre is one of his allies, another king in this, in this land of Canaan that he's living in. So anyway, we find that, yeah, there's a lot of kings living in this land of Canaan. Like I said, the land of Canaan hasn't become Israel yet. He doesn't own the entire country. He's like sharing it with these other kings. And then civil war breaks out. And there's this king, his name's Kedor Leomar. He has three kings that are allied to him, but he's subjected a lot of other kings to him, and they have to pay tribute. So another five kings in this land, they revolt against him, and this like civil war breaks out. And one of the five kings that revolt against this, against this king is um, the king of Sodom that we hear about where Lot, where Lot was living near. So anyway, this battle breaks out, and the four kings defeat the five. And Sodom and Lot and all the people living there get brought off, and they get taken up into slavery. And all the plunder and everything gets taken up and they by this king, Kedorleomar, and his three allies. Eventually, word breaks out to Abram, and he finds out that his nephew Lot has been taken captive, and he's not having any of this. So he wrestles up this sort of small army, this sort of misfit army of 318 guys out of his group of people. And they go and they fight these these four kings. And they actually defeat them. This little nomad guy, this little gypsy, you know, just cruising around the bushes, he goes and he defeats these four, four kings and he actually wins. And on the way back, he comes back and he brings all the plunder and all the people with and he and he brings Lot back. And the king of Sodom meets him in this valley called the Valley of Kings, or the King's Valley. Go figure. So he meets, he meets with Sodom to obviously give back all the plunder and everything. And while this meeting's happening, this other guy pulls in. His name is um, King Melchizedek. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Struggle with these names this morning. His name is King Melchizedek. And um, he comes, and I'm going to pick it up. From Genesis 14, uh, 17 to 23. After Abram returned from de- defeating uh, Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people, keep the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of sandal, strap of a sandal so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. So, like, weird, interesting little story. And, like, there's a lot of these kind of little stories in the Bible, and you kind of read them, and you go, what is this all about? Um, And the great thing, and what I love about the Bible is, you know, people say God works in mysterious ways, and he does, but he always explains his mysteries at some point, which is what I love, of, love about him and what I love about the Bible. 
And there's two other places in the Bible that explain to us what this story means. And the one place is um, in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 7. And the author of, of, of the book of Hebrews, he draws this deep theology about this, this King Melchizedek. Uh, and he starts off in Hebrews 7 by telling us the meaning of his name. And the meaning of his name is the King of Righteousness. And the meaning of the, the, the kingdom that he's over, which is um, uh, Salem. So he's the king of Salem. Salem is a very similar word to Jerusalem. And it means he's the king of peace. So this guy, the king of righteousness and the king of peace, meets um, Abram in this valley. And he brings him bread and wine. I don't know if I actually read that. Did I read that? I did read that, yeah. He brings him bread and wine. And, he's, and he blesses Abram. And he, and, and he, with him and with the bread and wine, he brings this blessing from God. And it's, it's so strange because it's, he's this, he's not even part of the, 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 the kings that were battling. He's just completely on his own, completely separate. And he just comes and he, and he blesses Abraham. Priest. And he is the priest of the God Most High. There's no other priest at that point. And the, the writer of Hebrews 7 continues to draw this deep theology from, from this guy, Melchizedek. Um, and he's, he, he mentions that he's not part of any priestly lineage. He's completely separate. He's not part of the Levites. He's completely separate. And yet he carries this blessing from God for Abram. And the representation of this blessing over Abram is the bread and the wine. And now Abram's standing there in this valley, and he's got this choice. You notice he's got this choice. He's standing there. He's got this king of righteousness here, and he's got this king of Salem, who's a really wicked guy. And, and, you know, I won't go into what happens there in Salem, but you can read it a little bit later on in the, in, after, uh, after this Genesis 14 chapter. And so Abram is presented with a choice. Uh, Sodom says, you can take all of this plunder all of this wealth, all of this money. Just give me my people back. You can take all the plunder. And Abram says, no, he's not having any of that. He's choosing God's blessing. And he actually loses out. <laughs> he actually gives away a tenth of all that he owns. He respects this guy, Melchizedek, so much that he gives him a tenth of everything he owns on the spot. But Abram understands something. He understands that the blessing of God is greater than any worldly wealth or any worldly possession that you can take up. So he chooses God's blessing over earthly plunder and over, you know, that what's offered by, by a wicked king. Um, so he chooses this, this, uh, the blessing from this um, King Melchizedek. And in Hebrews 7, the author carries on and he, he expounds this further and he uses another reference in the Bible that also talks about this, this, this king. And it's from, it's a Psalm of David, and it's Psalm 110. And it starts off, it's the one that starts off in saying, um, the Lord says to my Lord. So that is God speaking to Jesus, who was David's Lord. It's confusing, I know, but that's what it means. Um, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then it goes on, and it says a lot of like praises about, about this. Um, basically about Jesus, the prophecy about Jesus. And then later on it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
So we have this, this priest that's bringing this blessing that's separate from any other kind of sacrificial offering or any kind of uh, works that need to be done. It's just a, bless, a blessing that's presented to him. And, you know, like, like you know, why this story? Or why, why do we need to look, why do we need to know about these kings that have fought back in the day? And, you know, it's just another amazing thing that God does with his word where he... he Forgive the pun, but he places these little breadcrumbs through the scriptures. And it's to show us that his intentions remain true right from the very beginning. This story happened before Abram was the, uh, God even made a covenant with Abram. It happened even before that. So God's plans through blessing uh, or blessing his people through a king of righteousness, the, the king of righteousness was around before even his covenant um, with Abram. So, I'll move on from there, and another, probably the most important account in the Bible of breaking of bread is the story of the Passover. I think many of us know the story, um, but I'll go through it just in case you don't. So, the story starts um, in Exodus 12, where we see, so now the, the not the forefathers, but the, what do you call it, the, the seed of Abram, his his sons, you know, down his, what do you call it, the, the genealogy, yeah, like his descendants, that's the word I'm looking for, thank you. His descendants, <laughs> his descendants are now playing out this, this story in, in um, Exodus 12. And Jacob has got 12 brothers, these 12 brothers, are, eventually they represent the 12 tribes, tribes of Israel. Joseph is one of the brothers, that he's, he's, other brothers are not too fond of him. So they decide they're going to, Make as though he, he's, he's killed, and they're going to sell him off to slavers, and he's, he gets taken down to, to Egypt and sold into slavery. And his dad gives him, he, sort of, he was sort of like the favorite son, so his dad gives him this amazing, colorful cloak. And they decide, they take this cloak, they dip it in goat's blood, and then they give it back to the father, and they say, look, a wild animal has you know, eaten him, and he's dead, whatever. So they move, they... You know, obviously very sad, whatever. They, they care on, they live their lives. But now, Joseph, he grows up uh, in Egypt. And he ends up being becoming like a governor or a very, very high official in, in Egypt. And in the land, there's famine. And anyway, long story short, the whole family ends up moving into Egypt. And they're living there with the Egyptians. And this family grows into a whole nation that's living with these Egyptians. And as you can imagine, the Egyptians start becoming afraid of these people taking over their land. So they subject them to intense, intense slavery. And then the people of Israel start crying out to God. And then in Exodus 2, 24 and 25, it says, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So we all know this part of the story. He then initiates his plan to save his people from the, the, the wicked Egyptians. And he goes through these ten plagues, hectic plagues, and he does all this stuff to them. And then it eventually culminates in this final plague, which is where he's going to kill all the firstborn um, of, the, of the, the, the nation of Egypt. And... Yeah, he basically, there's, there's two other accounts where this has happened in the Bible. 
Um, the one was just before this, where Pharaoh actually did the same thing when he knew that the prophet, prophet Moses was being raised up. He killed all the firstborn of, of the Israelites. The second is King Herod, much later in the time of Jesus. He had all the firstborn in Bethlehem killed as well to try and get rid of Jesus. And these two wicked men did the same thing. People often use this as an argument against God and say, well, how can God be loving and just if he's going to go and kill a bunch of firstborn you know, children, adults, babies, animals, it even says. And a lot of skeptics use this as an argument against the fact that God is not good because he does this type of thing. And, you know, when I was, uh, before I was saved, I, I used to listen to a lot of Metallica. <laughs> it was one of my favorite bands. I don't listen to them that much anymore. Although I still like the music, if I'm honest, but their, their lyrics are a bit dodgy. So they had this song. It was actually one of my favorite songs of theirs. And I only realized much many years later what the song is actually about. And the song is called Creeping Death, okay, as, as you name a song, you know, when you're in a metal band. Um, the song is called Creeping Death, and it's, a, it's actually about the story of the Passover. And it's about the angel of death flying over Egypt and killing the first, firstborn of the nation. And it's got this real menacing, like, kind of evil tone to it, you know, and it, it, it grips you. It's a very well-written song in that brings that emotion of, like, anger and rage out in you. And, you know, it was only years later that I realized what it was about, and I read the lyrics of it, and the funny thing is the lyrics, there's nothing in those lyrics other than the name Creeping Death that's wrong of what the scriptures say. And, you know, it's like people get a miss, well, they, they get a half story of what God is. And they think of him as this sort of evil, menacing person that just wants to, like, destroy, you know. But actually, they don't know the full story. If you really understand the story, there's, there's so much grace and mercy in the story as well. He gives the Egyptians ten chances to, to let the Israelites go. Ten times, he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh hardens his heart. And it's not that God made his heart hard. It was the pride within Pharaoh and the position that God was putting him in that caused his heart to be hard against God. And each time he said, no, no, no. And then eventually it came to this point where God had to do this last, this last, where he actually had to afflict the people with this plague. And so we see in the Bible that God is a God of war and a God of peace. And just after they cross the Red Sea, so they, they eventually they do escape, they cross the Red Sea, um, and the Red Sea uh, crashes over the, the Egyptian soldiers and they get wiped out, and then the people sing the song of praise to God. Um, and the sort of like the second line of the, um, of the song of praise, it says, the Lord is a warrior, he, the Lord is his name. And if you look in the King, King James Version, it actually says, the Lord is a man of war. Um, and it's like when David came against Goliath, he says, you know, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. And we have this name that he uses there called Jehovah Saba, which is the God of the armies of Israel, the Lord, our warrior. So you have this picture of, of God being this warrior that he, and he just wants to, he just, he'll just crush anything that he needs to. But at the same time, like in Romans, it says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
and we've, we've I've just spoken of the king of the king of peace, you know, the king of Salem. So we have this sort of duality of God. He's like this God of war and and this God of peace at the same time. And you know, sometimes there has to be war in order for there to be peace. And so God, I'm just going to find my place quick. So God, and there's one, there's one other thing that 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 God mentions that sort of like qualifies His ability to do this. And in the Exodus or in the Passover story, He says, "On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Israel." And His justification for that, He says, "I am the Lord," and He is just. He is true. Everything that he does is because of the position that he's in. Um, you know, it, it seems harsh or it, seem, it seems rash, but he is just, you know. Um, and like I said, he, he's, he gave them a lot, of, um, a lot of opportunity to repent. And he always does. Whenever there's his justice, his peace and his mercy and his grace are right next to it. Both go hand in hand. And he always gives us a choice. We, we need to choose him in order to take part in his mercy and grace. And so the choice that he gives the Israelites is that he says, if you want to be free of my justice, have a meal together, he says to them. What a bargain, right? I mean, he actually tells them, have a spit bar. He says, take a, take a lamb and roast it over fire. That's what it says. Okay, it was a bit more rushed than that, but, you know. So, so, so he says, take a lamb, roast it over coals, don't boil it, roast it, make sure you consume everything. If you don't finish it, if you don't finish eating it, burn the rest. Don't leave anything for morning. He says, have it with bitter herb and have it with bread without yeast. That's unleavened bread. So he gives them this, this meal that they need to have. And once, so, so the, the lamb would have been with them for like two weeks. Would have lived in the house. They would have slaughtered it, and then they take the blood with hyssop and they paint it on the door frames. And this was the this was the thing they had to do in order to be saved from God's justice over the people. And you know, if he, if if the Egyptians had done the same, would they have been saved? I, th- I think they would have, because it's the ordinance that God gave them to do to carry out in order to be saved. So, so yeah, we have this. Um, this, this sort of, we, we, we see going on from this point. Obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a big thing that God did in the Israelites' lives. He's, he rescued them from this oppressive force. And this meal becomes an ordinance for them. And well, I'll just before I, I jump ahead, I want to say, in this meal, the, the breaking of bread and the meal itself of breaking of bread is a representation, or it's, a, it's, it's like an outpouring, a physical representation of the outpouring of God's grace and mercy over the people. So this then becomes um, a lasting ordinance um, to the people. And it actually says in following books, Exodus, uh, uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, it says they need to observe this meal yearly in remembrance of what happened to those Israelites um, in Egypt. So every year, they would, on the 14th day of the first month of, of their Jewish first month, 
they would celebrate this meal together. And um, there's many different interpretations of, of now of, of, of how they do this. But it generally falls around the same sort of format that they follow, the Jews. And it's, it's sort of split up into four different cups. That they would, four different toasts. They would toast wine, glass of wine, and they would, they would make a toast. Um, and the whole, like I said, the whole purpose of this meal was to look back into the past and to remember what God did for their ancestors. So they would start with the first cup, and they would say this blessing. They would raise a glass. Here's my fancy wine glass. They would raise a glass, and they would say, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Bottoms up. And so now, you may, you may remember the story of the Passover that Jesus shared with his disciples just shortly before his death. So they observed this meal together. And Jesus is so amazing what he does in this meal. So I want to read it from you, read it to you. So for this next part, if you could open your Bibles to maybe Luke chapter 22. Um, we're going to start in 17. And I'd like you just to sort of read it and observe with me as we go, as we go along. I'll give you a few minutes to get there. Cool. So it says in verse 17 of Luke 22, After taking the cup, he gave thanks. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the wine. And then he says, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, and this being the wine, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he takes this thousand five, at that stage, it would have been a thousand five hundred years, one of the longest observed traditions of any sort of religious culture. And he changes it in this night as he's sitting with his, with his disciples. And he doesn't make it about the past. He's not making it about what happened to someone else years and years ago. He makes it about what's going to happen in the coming days. And so the disciples must have been very confused and very puzzled. You know, Jesus, what are you talking about? This is, you know, we're celebrating the answers. We're not, we're not... So anyway, he carries on, and he would have raised the second cup. And he would have said, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. And with this second cup, they would normally do what they call dipping of the carpus. And what they would do is they would take, like, celery or parsley or some sort of vegetable, and they would dip it in salt water, and they would eat it like that. And this dipping of the carpus represented... Um, Joseph's cloak being dipped in the goat's blood, which was the start of their being taken into Egypt and, and the start of their, um, what do you call it, their, yeah, you know what I mean. So they, so they would do this, and then they would follow it by reading Psalm 113 to 118. So you might remember Psalm 118, which is what I shared 
um, with the previous preach, and that's the one that says uh, uh, towards the end, um, the stone the builders have rejected has become the, sto- the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. That comes from Psalm 118. So they would have read Psalm 113 all the way, all those Psalms, to 118. But today I'll read you Psalm 113. And I'm going to read it and put it in light of the Israelites being saved from the Egyptians. So it says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. And they would have raised the second cup. So the third cup they would have raised would have sort of centered around the eating of the unleavened bread. So there was a specific part in there. They call it the Passover cedar. It's this this sort of ordinance they observe. They would have broken the unleavened bread. There's a specific part where they break the unleavened bread. Um, And then it was to represent or it was to remember the bread that their ancestors had to cook without yeast. They had to do it without yeast because it was quicker to make it. If you read the original Passover story, it says, eat it with haste. So they had this whole meal they had to eat it quickly because as soon as God had done the judgment, they had to get out of there. And it was to remember that. It was to, to remember them getting out of Egypt quickly and the sustenance that it gave them to carry them through as they went out you know, into the desert and what, what. So they break this bread, this unleavened bread. It kind of looks like a biscuit because it has no yeast in it. And they, they would break this. Now listen to what Jesus says. He says, and he took bread, he gave thanks, um, he would have said, where is it now? Blessed, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. He would have said that. He breaks it, he gives it to them, and he says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He takes this tradition, 1,500 years old, to remember what happened to their ancestors, and he says, this is me that I'm giving to you. And he says it's for you specifically. And I can imagine the disciples sitting in stunned, stunned silence at that moment. You know, probably not fully understanding, you know. Um, and in this case, like I said, it, it, it represents the sustenance that Jesus gives us. You know, his broken body over us. Like it says in uh, Matthew 6 verse 11. Uh, sorry, um, or it says in Matthew 6 uh, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. And then also in John 6.35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He is the bread of life, and he gives us sustenance. They would then take the bitter herb, and the bitter herb was 
a representation of the bitterness that the Israelites felt under the oppression of, of the wicked Pharaoh. So they would have taken the, the bitter herb, and then they would have brought them onto the Passover meal. So they would slaughter the lamb, cook it on a roast, roast it on a fire, consume everything, and then following that would be the fourth cup. And in Luke 22, um, verse 20, we see uh, it says here, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said this, uh, This is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And the thing I love about this, like Jesus, you just when you read the story, you just get an understanding of the of the love that he had for these twelve men. He said, I mean, this is how he told them he was going to die. This is how he told them he was going to fulfill, you know, centuries worth of prophecy over him. He sits down and he has a meal together. And he changes the components of this meal that they knew so well. And he changes it and he makes it about himself and he makes it about them. And you know, <laughs> I can so relate to these disciples because they, they, didn't, they didn't really get it. Because straight after that, they start arguing about who's, who's, who's better. They're like, who's greater, you know? Like, I'm better than you, what? Jesus must have been like, boy. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then obviously we know how the story goes. He gets, uh, they go out into the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's the point where he gets betrayed and taken captive. And, you know, and in that point, they flee. They just run away from him. Even one of the, one of the, the, the scholars think that it's John Mark. He ran away so quickly that he left his clothes behind. I mean, like, that's, that's a lot of fear that you've got to have. You know, obviously there must have been like a bit of a tussle, you know, and then he, but he said he, he fled away um, naked. And while Jesus was pray, praying, they were falling asleep, you know. Like, Guys, come on, like, you know. And then we know that uh, later on when Jesus gets captured, Peter denies him three times. He says, no, I don't know who this man is. And, you know, I think that, um, what's beautiful about it is that when the disciples thought back after having known what he was saying, I think they must have felt a lot of guilt. I know I would have. A lot of like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Why, you know, why, why did I do that? Why did I say that? But yet, the beautiful thing is that his words still stand true. The words that he spoke over them that night, they still stand true. Um, this is my body that I break for you, that is broken for you. And this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He did it all for them. And um, so you can understand, having known all this, why the disciples or the apostles and the disciples who got saved that day, uh, the, on the day of Pentecost, devoted themselves to breaking of bread. Because they're devoting themselves to all of this the knowledge of what God has done in the beginning, what he's doing in their lives, and what he's doing in the future in bringing the kingdom of heaven through the work that he's doing in them. And, um, you know, by choosing to take the, the breaking of bread, we choose Jesus' blessing over us. 
the bread and the wine are a symbol of a blessing. We choose his blessing over any worldly wealth or any worldly gain. We choose him. We choose his grace and mercy poured out over us. And, um, you know, we start to realize that the evil that he's fighting is not some evil or wicked king of Sodom or he's not, it's not some wicked pharaoh, you know, that's holding a bunch of people, oppress, uh, you know, oppressing a whole bunch of people. It's the evil that lives inside of us, you know, our propensity to do evil things. Like Paul talks about, you know, it's like his flesh. It's like this dead body that he's dragging around. He wants to do the good, the right thing, but yet he ends up doing the wrong thing all the time, you know. And it's this flesh that we have, this, this, this weight, and he wants to save us from that. He wants to pass over and he wants to put to death that old life of ours. He doesn't want us to die. So taking in the bread and the cup and observing the breaking of bread puts us in that position where we're saying, Lord, this, this evil that's inside of us, this, this, this propensity to do the wrong thing, this, this tendency to keep doing the wrong thing, I want to put this to death, but I want your life, I want your sustaining bread to live in me. And, um, yeah. And then, like I said, we are reminded of this, this sustaining power that Jesus gives us through our journey of salvation. Um, we're going to take up the bread and the wine. So I think if we can distribute it amongst all the people, I give, I'll give you guys a few moments to do that, and then we'll, we'll all partake it together. Okay, so uh, you guys can. Sorry, I didn't read the memo. You guys can come up, and you can you can come and take for yourselves. Apologies for that. Apologies for the confusion.
All right, everybody got the chalice of wine? All right. Let's raise a toast. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe who creates the fruit of the vine. We thank you, Jesus, for the blood poured out over our lives the sanctification and the justification that you give us. And we, Lord, and Lord, we are aware of the wrong that we've done. And we just thank you for your mercy and grace poured out upon us. In Jesus' name. Let's take the bread. Break it. Difficult to break when it's so small. You can take it. I won't chew into the mic. We thank you, Jesus, for your body that's broken over us, for your sustaining grace. You are the bread of life. And we thank you, Lord, that you give us sustenance. You make us whole through your brokenness. And we just thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. In the name of Jesus.